It's wonderful to pray for these missionaries and pray for them together and give thanks. The most important part of my week and the most important part of your week is sitting humbly and obediently under one of the chief means of grace that God gives, meaning one of the ways that we can grow in our Christian faith, and that is through the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. And we come to that time now. Please take your copy of the Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. As you're turning there, just I want to remind you of of where we are this evening. Last week, we looked at the apostasy section in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. It is a sobering warning. It is a very scary warning about those who would deliberately reject Christ and walk away from the faith. And yet today, in verse 9 to 12, we come to a wonderful text of Scripture that I've entitled, Better Things for God's People. So follow with me as I read Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of the living God. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love, which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Our Father, we pray. We pray that you would teach us through the reading and preaching of the word. Thank you for the shepherd elders of Christ Fellowship Bible Church that are committed to holding forth the faithful word, to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Thank you for your wise design in revealing the headship of Christ over his church as he would speak to his church through the reading of the word and the expository preaching of the word. Father, this afternoon, it is my prayer and the elders' prayer that every single one of the 74 members would be greatly edified this very day. For those who are believers, that we would be strengthened, that we would be built in the faith, that we would be motivated to diligently walk in holiness. O Father, for those who are not true believers, would you mercifully save them, save them this very hour. Save them from hell. Save them from the wrath of God. Save them from apostasy. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine with me as we begin, imagine a really big and important football game. Imagine it's halftime. Imagine the team has gotten off the field and they're in the locker room. And the team is losing by a couple of touchdowns. And there have been quite a number of incomplete passes. There have been some false starts and a number of penalties and a a missed field goal opportunity and, and just kind of a sloppy work ethic all around. The quarterback has been sacked far more than should have been. And so the coach comes into the locker room with a team that's kind of ashamed and a team that's kind of embarrassed, and the team just, the coach just lays into them. He calls them out name by name, one by one. You dropped that catch. You allowed the quarterback to get tackled. You missed the field goal. And he's just going on and on and on, and you just feel it. Our coach is serious. Our coach wants our full attention. But then after a couple of minutes of that stern reproof, his whole countenance changes. His whole tone changes. 
And with an expression of love, he says, guys, I know you. And you're better than this. And I know what you're capable of. And I've seen you perform. And I've seen you accomplish what you need to do. And I know that you can come back. And I know that you can make the touchdown. And I know that you can win the game. And he goes on and on with these encouragements. And on and on with these motivations. So that the team is ready to go back on the field and play better. That change of tone in that locker room speech is the change of tone in our passage today. In the previous section in chapter 6, the author was quite bold, and he's quite stirred at the end of chapter 5 as well. He mentions to the people very clearly that they have become very dull of hearing. They've become spiritually lazy, that they've become sluggish. He has told them that, but yet now in chapter 6, verse 9, the whole tone changes. The whole attitude changes. Here the author, the pastor, the preacher, Octor, as we've named him, he expresses affectionate love for the people. He loves the congregation. He encourages the congregation. He is motivating the congregation. He is reassuring the congregation. He is comforting them. He wants them to know the proper motivation for godliness. Jesus Christ is the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the theme of the whole letter of Hebrews. He is God, very God. He is infinitely better. He is infinitely worthy. He is infinitely superior than anything and everything the early Jewish Christians could have ever dreamed of for salvation. He's infinitely better than anything you could ever dream of in this world. Jesus is better. Jesus is far superior. Jesus is magnificently great. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Priest, the friend of sinners. He is the justifier. He is the compassionate friend. He is God, very God. He himself made propitiation for our sins. He is the great high priest. This is your Savior. This is your great high priest. And the goal of all of these passages is for you to not dwell on yourself, but for you to dwell on him. But in chapter 5, at the end, all the way through chapter 6, the author, the pastor, the preacher, he gives a warning. He gives a warning because he knows there are many in the church who are trusting in Christ, but there are some who, as Jesus said, are tares among the wheat. There are some, when the seed is scattered, who are on the rocky soil or the thorny soil and would inevitably prove themselves to be unbelievers. One of his great fears is that there would be apostates, those who would claim to believe, and then at some point later they would turn away from Christ. And he warns them, we saw it last week, he warns them, don't fall away. Don't fall away. But where we are today... In chapter 6, verse 9, and then we'll continue it next week to the end of the chapter, is hope-filled promises. It's all hope. It's all promises. It's all comfort. It's all motivation. A lot of reasons that God gives for you to diligently love him, serve him, grow in your Christian walk. If you look just back at chapter 6, verse 4, I want to bring out a contrast in the text. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and they have partasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, verse 6, and then they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God. And they put him to open shame. Notice the they, 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 those people. Look at verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning, not them, but you. 
I want you to see that because where we are today is the author is now turning his attention again to the believers, to the true church, to the true Christians. And so everything that I'm going to say today and what we're going to look at next week when we finish the chapter is all tender. It's all affectionate. It all comes from the heart of pastoral love. It is comforting. It is encouraging. It is a stirring section of Scripture. It is calling for your imitation and your growth of Christ and in Christ. It is a very motivating section from the pastor. It is full of hope that God knows and God is aware and God promises to reward his people. You see there in verse 9, but beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you. That's where the title of the sermon comes from, Better Things. We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at the better things that God has for true believers. Our text today provides pastoral words of love, pastoral words of comfort, in order to stir our growth in Christ. So to comfort you, to help you, I want to give you two simple words, two simple exhortations, two simple points by which we can walk through these verses together. It's really quite simple. Number one, the author says, number one, you have to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Number two, you need to be exhorted. Be encouraged in the Lord. And number two, be exhorted to keep growing Let's walk through this together. In the first, pastoral word of love in order to stir up the people of God in greater holiness. He says in verses 9 and 10, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. In fact, church family, if I could say that to you today, I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged in what? That God sees your ministry. Be encouraged that God sees your ministry. In verse 9, when the author begins this section, he has, he has changed his tone. He has changed his focus away from the apostasy and away from the unbelievers who fall away. But now, beloved, verse 9, now beloved. That's an interesting word. It's the only time it happens in Hebrews. And the word beloved is a most tender word, and I think there's a couple of things included. The author is saying, Christian, hear this. Number one, you are in the state of being loved by God. Never forget it. You are right now in the state of being loved by God. You are beloved. And I think related to that, second, you're you're in the affectionate love of your pastor. God loves you, and so do I. So do I. You're loved, and everything that he's going to say is flowing out of a heart of love. All that he's going to say is gushing from a heart of love. Verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things for you. What do you mean better things? Better things than what? What do you mean better things? Well, in the context... Better than apostatizing. I'm convinced of much better things for you. Much better than apostatizing. So that you're not viewed, as verse 8 says, of the apostates who are worthless. They are close to being cursed. And they will end up being burned. There's better things for you than that. Better than apostasy is a hope-filled destiny. Better than falling away is drawing near to Christ. Better than being cursed and cast into hell is being embraced and loved in Christ. Better than being judged for your sin is being justified in Christ. All of the blessings, all of the joys, all of the promises, all of the hope that comes from you being beloved, not apostatizing, there are far better things for you, like the election of God. 
the call of God, the justification of God. This is yours. The wrath that has been appeased by Jesus Christ on your account. The love that you have received in God. You have infinite joy in God. You have future heaven to be yours in God. These are far better. Far better. So do you see that there in verse 9? But beloved, beloved, I want to encourage you. There are far better things for you. Far better than apostatizing. And the things that accompany salvation, all the benefits that come with it, even though we have spoken in a very bold way with you. So you need to be encouraged. And I want to give you three ways that verse 10 brings out. And I get this because verse 10 begins with the word for. Let me explain what I mean. Let let me give you further proof, verse 10 begins. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your love in ministering and still ministering to the saints. Number one, why should you be encouraged? Jot this down. Number one, because God sees your ministry. He sees your work. He sees it. He sees it all. In verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work. Christian, I want you to hear something. The smallest act that you might do, the most most unseen act that you might do, the simplest act that you might do, it doesn't have to be big and flashy and earth-shaking, but a simple act of obedience in love for God, a simple work and labor in ministry is known by God. A little footnote real quick. Roman Catholic theologians go here to try to prove that God remembers your works in order for you to earn your justification. But it can't mean that because in verse 9, he calls them beloved. He, he has already told them all through chapters 2 and 3 and 4 that they can draw near to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. This is not about how to get saved. He's talking to believers. God doesn't forget your work. It reminds me of Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles that they are not. You found them to be false and you have persevered and you've endured for my name's sake. You can hear Jesus saying, I know your work. Revelation 2.19 is the same thing to the church of Thyatira. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. Revelation 3 verse 8, I know your deeds. Jesus knows. Take your Bible. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to see this. This is one of my go-to passages in biblical counseling, usually in session number two or three, because this is really important for all believers to know this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. My life's goal must be to please God. Verse 10. Why? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, true Christian faith is always a working faith. True Christian faith is a faith that is working, it is serving, it is active. And the author is saying, God sees your work. Your pastor might not see it. The elder might not see it. The deacon may not see it. Your spouse may not see it. The person you're serving may not even notice it. But God sees it. Think of the ways in which you serve others. Think of the ways in which you take meals to those in the church family. Think of the times that you're on your knees praying for others in the church family. 
Think of that simple text message of encouragement that you send to a fellow church member. Think of that time when you call perhaps even a saint who's at home, they're homebound, and you're encouraging them and you're praying with them. Think of the times of discipleship with other believers. Think of how you're speaking well of other believers in the church family. Think of how you're supporting evangelists and missionaries, and you're reaching out to the dull and lazy ones, and you're calling them to grow. You're bearing the burdens of one another. You're ministering to others. Every tract you hand out, every moment of discipleship, God sees it all. He sees it. And that's what verse 10 is saying back in our text. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. Of course he's not unjust. God sees it all. He knows he's fair. He is righteous. He doesn't forget your work. Not only does he see your ministry, But you can write down the second one here. He also sees your love. He sees your love. Now, careful. He sees your love for him. Your love for him. It's not uncommon when I'm on the street evangelizing with others here and someone will say, I'm a child of God. I'm saved by grace. You look at their life and they're living however they want. It's almost like they view their Christianity as kind of fire insurance, right? Got me out of hell and I can live any way I want now. No, no, that's, that's abominable thinking. No, the Christian, the regenerate man, the believer says, I'm a child of God. I am saved by grace. I will not live as I want, but I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. And God's grace will lead me into holiness, and God's grace will preserve me until the end. That's what a Christian would say. That's what a child of God would say. And the author says here in verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work, nor does God forget the love which you have shown toward his name. If you could ask me, if you cornered me and said, Jeff, what is the simplest mark of a Christian? It's love for God. Everything else will flow out of that. Simple love for God. John 14, verse 21, Jesus said that we love the one who loves us, and we, the Father and I, will come and make our abode with him. 1 Peter 1, 8, even though we've not seen Christ, we love him and we rejoice in him. John 14, verse 15, we love Christ and we keep his commandments. So ponder. Are are you preoccupied with love for God? Are Are you preoccupied with love for Jesus? Not not just doing things for him that will flow out of a love that we have for God. It is the greatest commandment that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. You see, love toward God for his person, for his character, for his attributes, for all of his deeds in history, for all the salvation that he's given. That is the proof of our great love, meaning love for God, love for his great name is what motivates It's what motivates our love and service to others. If you love God, you're going to serve one another. If we love the Father, we're going to love the children who are born of God. Listen to 1 John 2, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness. So if you say that you're a Christian, but you have an indwelling hatred in your heart towards someone, God says you're not a Christian. 1 John 2, 9. Or he continues in 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In 1 John 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and whoever loves the Father will love the children who are born of God. So how do we show love for God? What does it look like? What's the proof of love for God? How does it show itself in our lives? And the answer is how you love and serve God's people. Do you hear that? The proof of your genuine love for God is how you love and serve God's people. And I want to show you that grammatically in the text. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and look at verse 10. God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. And then the Greek has an ing verb. We call it a participle. It's a further explaining. How do you show love toward God? By ministering. By ministering. So God sees your work. He sees your love. And then just write down this third one. God sees your ministry. He sees your ministry and your service to the saints. And I love the end of verse 10. This word ministering or serving is the Greek word deacon. Deacon. This is what God's people do. We serve. This is what God's people do. We serve because our Savior has served us. It's a word that means serving, helping, caring, ministering, meeting needs, finding needs, and meeting the needs. Go with me quickly to a couple of scriptures. Turn back to Romans 12. Let me show you this. Romans 12. And this is, what we're going to do is we're going to read three scriptures that deal in the context of spiritual gifts. Because I want to talk about spiritual gifts for a moment with you. This is ministry. This is what we're called to do. This is how you demonstrate love for God. This is how we demonstrate our affection for God. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For the grace, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So we hear that, right? One body, but many members. Okay, verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. Verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Turn just one book to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what I want to show you is that the church is the venue for you to use your spiritual gift in ministering and serving one another. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Let's begin in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts with the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one, do you hear that? That's you, Christian. To each Christian, to each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's not some Pentecostal thing. That means there's a showing of the Spirit. You show the work of God at work in your life for the common good. Verse 8, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit is working all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Go back to our text in Hebrews, and then just turn over a little bit to the right, First Peter chapter 4. Just one more text. 
Because what I want to show you is that the great way that the author is encouraging the people is they're actually using their spiritual gifts. They're serving. They're ministering. Look at 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God knows how you serve, and he has equipped you, Christian, each one of us to serve. Back to our text in Hebrews. The author says, God knows. He knows your work. He knows your love. And the way that you show your love toward the name of God is by ministering. It's by serving. It's by exercising your spiritual gift. I love it when people say, Jeff, Well, how do I find my spiritual gift? Okay, don't Google it. Don't do that. That's bad. It's going to lead you astray. Let's define it first. What's a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a grace-given gift from God to every believer to use for God's glory in the context of the church. It is a grace-given gift from God to every believer to use for God's glory in the church. It could be counseling. It could be showing mercy. It could be giving. It could be meeting the needs of other saints. It could be helping. It could be encouraging. It could be teaching. It could be preaching. It could be administrating. It could be leading. It could be supporting. It could be discipleship. What is a spiritual gift? There's not a cookie cutter thing that you've got to fit into some category. That's the wrong thinking. Here's how you find a spiritual gift. What do you enjoy doing? And how are others blessed by your ministry? In the context of the church. You know what that does? It keeps you from being a Sunday-only attender doing your own thing. But it causes you to be in the body of Christ as each member is together serving the body of Christ. And we are using the gift. We are serving others. And others are benefiting from my service to them. These are the good acts of service. That God knows that you're doing. God doesn't forget it. God is not unaware. God doesn't forget what you're doing. He sees your work. He sees your love. And he sees, look at the end of verse 10, how you have ministered. Maybe that's like a general. Yeah, you've done a lot of ministry. But then he gets specific. You are ministering to the saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, your labor is never in vain. Ephesians 2, 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So ponder with me, ponder with me, even boys and girls, use your imagination with this. Ponder all of the books that God has. It's a lot. And imagine all of God's books and every single one of your works. Every time that you've served, every time that you've labored, every time that you have ministered to others, all of your prayers, all of the phone calls, all of the visits, all of the works of kindness spoken to people, all of your efforts to serve other people, all of your evangelism conversations, all the areas of ministry that often may go unseen, unnoticed, unthanked, and unappreciated, the author says, be encouraged, God sees it all. I love Paul's perspective in Romans 15, 25. I think we all should strive to cultivate this. 
Paul says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. May may that be our heart. I'm, I'm going to church today to serve the saints. I'm going to the midweek prayer meeting to serve the saints. I'm going to go care for that family in serving the saints. I'm going to go to my care group. I'm going to go to my Bible study. I'm going to go minister to that person out of love for God. By the way, there are some who are here training for ministry and some who are here that have a desire for full-time ministry. Let me give you a quick word to those of you specifically. There's a lot of talk that is floating around pastoral blogs and articles about burnout nowadays. Burnout. And there are those who say that they get burnt out and maybe they leave one church and they give up on the ministry and they do something else because they just get burnt out. That's the topic. That's the buzzword now. It's all around. And I am absolutely convinced that burnout happens because devotion and love for Jesus is not maintained. Burnout doesn't, it doesn't come from you being busy. Everybody's busy. It doesn't come from you having a lot of pressure. We all have pressure. Burnout comes when you lose your love for Jesus. I like the way one pastor put it. He said, ministry in pastoral work, it's like having your cup filled full to the brim, and then you're just sharing that. You're just slopping over all of that onto others from your love for Christ. But when you let your, lo- your cup run dry, you have nothing left to give. Burnout will happen. By the way, I think the cure for pastoral burnout, for some who are here and want to be in ministry, the cure for pastoral burnout is not finding a new church. The cure for pastoral burnout is not getting all these other plans in place with all the scheduling tactics. That's not a cure for burnout. The cure for burnout is growing afresh in your love for Christ. That's what we need. And that's what the author is saying. Don't forget, God knows your work. He knows your love and he knows your ministry. Christian, let's be encouraged by this. Let's grow in this. Let's be motivated because of the great knowledge of God in how we live. So number one, be encouraged. God sees your ministry. But if you're taking notes, here's the second main point that the author gives us in our text, Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12, and it's this, and I want you to hear this carefully. He calls us to be exhorted, to be exhorted that we are to diligently grow in godliness. Okay, so you're encouraged. Let your encouragement motivate growth in holiness. I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Thessalonian believers in chapter 4, verse 1. He said, I want you to excel still more. And then if talking about sexual purity and talking about their work, Paul tells them again in verse 10, I want you to excel still more. And that Greek word means, I want you to go over and above. I want you to go beyond. You see where you are spiritually? Keep growing. Keep advancing. Go above and beyond. That's what the author does right here in verses 11 and 12. Look at our text, verse 11. We desire that each one of you. That word desire is often translated lust elsewhere in the Bible. It is a strong, passionate, consuming desire. You can hear the pastor coming maybe by the side of the pulpit with a, with a fervent word of affectionate love. I have, I have a desire Verse 11, that each one of you, every one of you 74 members, we could say and make it personal here, every one of the 74 members, every Christian, every child of God, we earnestly desire that each one of you, verse 11, you show the same diligence. That's an interesting word, diligence. He wants you to be diligent. He just encouraged you. 
God knows your work. Now he wants you to be diligent. I love this word diligence. It means zeal. It means passion. It means energy. It means effort. I I want every one of you, every single Christian, to show diligence. I think the author perhaps is reflecting on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Apply all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence into your moral excellence knowledge and knowledge self-control and perseverance and godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. That's 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 11. Diligently, diligently pursue virtue. Okay, so what does the author want? Back to our text. He wants you to diligently pursue a couple of things. That's the rest of our text here. If you're writing down notes, number one, diligently persevere. He wants you to persevere. You gotta be diligent in persevering. And isn't that the whole context? Hold on to Christ. Cling to Jesus. Don't fall away. Jesus is better. Hold fast to the confession. We desire that each one of you, our text says in verse 11, show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end? Yes, until your earthly pilgrimage is done. Until your life ends. I want you to persevere till the end of life. Maybe you say, well, I want to do that. Well, it's kind of tough. I've seen people fall away. I don't want that to be me. How do I do this? You've got to bear three things in mind. Our perseverance in the Christian life always has three directions. And these are really important. Number one, the Christian's perseverance is forward, is forward. You know what that means? Listen carefully. You don't live in the past. Man, my upbringing was a mess. Man, I was abused here. I had this kind of background. I had this marriage. I had this work. I had this family. I had this spouse. The past is there, but you don't live there. The Christian life is forward moving. We don't fixate on the past. We don't dwell on the past. We realize it. We know God is sovereign, but we don't dwell on it. Number two, the second direction is it's onward. How do we persevere? It's forward, but it's onward, meaning we don't give up in the difficult moments. You got to keep going onward. Onward, Christian soldiers, the hymn says. We, we, we don't live in the past. We're always forward-looking, but yet our direction is always onward. We're moving forward even in the difficult moments. And the third direction for the Christian life is upward. Is upward. Why? Because our hope is heaven. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus. Our hope is heavenward. It is the sure mark of a regenerated soul. It is a faith that doesn't fail. It is a faith that doesn't fall away. Why? Because Christ holds you. Because the Spirit indwells you. It is a continual clinging to Christ. So, hear this. If apostasy is giving up altogether, right? Apostasy is giving up. You're turning your back on Jesus. Apostasy is giving up altogether. The opposite of that, listen carefully, is not winning the gold medal. The opposite and the antidote to apostasy is finishing well. Who cares about finishing first? Who cares about getting the gold medal? Who cares about winning the prize above others. No, God wants us 
to be faithful. You don't have to be well-known to be a hero. You know what a hero is? A hero is a faithful soldier for Jesus who is popular or unpopular, and yet they persevere to the end. That's a hero. By the way, if that's not you today, if that's not you, if you're not persevering with Christ and things are tough and you're just kind of waffling and you're trusting the Lord, I call you to come to Christ. I call you to receive him as Lord and Savior, to hold fast to him. Because the author says right here in verse 11, I want you to show the same diligence to realize the full assurance of hope all the way until the end. How do we diligently live our lives? Number one, you wrote down we must persevere. Number two, we must advance. We must advance. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish. We saw that same word Back in chapter 11, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. You're sluggish. The author says, I don't want you to be a high-maintenance toddler Christian. I don't want you to be spiritually lazy. Chapter 6, verse 12, I don't want you to be sluggish of action. We, we know Our works do not save us, right? We understand that. We know that our works do not save us. But we do know that a true faith that saves will always show itself to be a working faith. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. It is a working faith. It is a diligent faith. It is a hard-working faith. And that's what the author is calling for in chapter 6, verse 12. I want you to be diligent to show the full assurance of hope until the end so that you're not sluggish. Don't be lazy. John 15, 10, bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Okay, maybe, maybe an illustration here. I was reading recently about the Olympics, and I came across how one of the prevailing viewpoints among many is that gymnastics is the toughest sport in the Olympics. It's the toughest sport in the Olympics, many say, due to the physical strength and the flexibility and the stamina and the precision and the balance and the poise and the coordination and the focus and all that goes into all of the different gymnastics. And then the story talked about a 27-year-old girl from Armenia. Her name was Huri Gabishian. The story talked about this lady as a hard worker. She had a dream of going to the Olympics, and she began doing gymnastics when she was five years old as a young girl and always had the dream of, of going to the Olympics. She would work hard, and she would do her very best, and she didn't qualify. And then the next few years, she didn't qualify. And then the next few years, she didn't qualify. And she was discouraged. In fact, even some people told her to quit. In fact, she did for a brief time. Her job, full-time, was delivering babies at a nearby hospital in her hometown. And then she would get off work, and she would go and train in her gymnastics. Finally, after much work and perseverance and diligence and effort, she did try out and she did make it and qualify to the Olympics. She was in Rio a number of years ago in 2016. The point of this whole article about her and the gymnastics was this. She went to the Olympics. She didn't win a medal. She she didn't. She, She wasn't the best one out there. But the point of the story was that she never gave up. It was that she persevered. It was that she worked hard. It was that she advanced. It was that she gave all of her effort to this. She didn't win the gold medal. She didn't win the silver medal. She didn't get the bronze medal, but she made it. And she persevered. And you know what? The Christian life is kind of like that. It's persevering and laboring and being diligent and advancing. 
That's what Hebrews 6 is saying, verse 12. Don't be sluggish. Don't be spiritually lazy. Don't be a high-maintenance toddler Christian. Be a diligent worker growing in Christ. And And then he concludes, at the end of verse 12, one of the ways that we can do this. Look in your Bible. Look at Hebrews 6, verse 12. Verse 12, I don't want you to be sluggish, but rather I want you to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's almost like you can see a little bit of a precursor to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. All the different people who lived by faith and patience, and we, we, we remember them, and we imitate their faith. And we follow them as they follow Christ. Follow their example. That's what verse 12 is saying. We are imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how do we do this? Well, we can understand and read biographies of Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Noah, David, on and on we could go. We could read biographies of those in church history, read and imitate those who have, who have faith and patience, and they inherited the promises, like David Brainerd's life and journal entries is a must-read. George Mueller's autobiography is a stellar read. John Piper, all of his biographies are wonderful. A little book that Joel Beakey put together called Meet the Puritans is a wonderful biographical study of the Puritans. John Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great read. Why? Not to put a man on a pedestal, but to see how men and women in redemptive history have followed God and to say, Lord, I want to be patient and I want to persevere and I want to follow you and I want to imitate those who have done that. We're called in Hebrews 13 to imitate our leaders. We're called to follow their example. But ultimately, we could go back to Ephesians chapter 5, where we read in verse 1, be imitators of God. We are to imitate God, and we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. See what Christ has done. And the example he set in offering himself as a sacrifice for his people. And see how these, these people have lived by faith. See how they, have, how they have been patient and how they have endured and how they have inherited the promises. And yet, it didn't come immediately, but they had to be patient. They had to be patient. By the way, Speaking of being patient, next week, when we come to verse 13, we're going to look at an example. And his name is Abraham. And we're going to learn how, how Abraham received a promise from God, the Abrahamic covenant. And he was patient, and he was believing, and he trusted in his God, and how God is a faithful God. We'll look at that next week. And then you come to chapter 7 of Hebrews. By the way, remember how we were talking about Melchizedek and all the high priestly work of Jesus, our great high priest? Well, then he's going to come back to that, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then in Hebrews 11, you can almost hear him saying, remember when I said way back then in Hebrews 6, how we ought to imitate those who inherited the promises? Chapter 11, let me talk about those who lived by faith. This sermon is brilliant. The sermon is masterfully put together. But right here in our passage, the author is encouraging the people of God. He reminds the people of God, you serve obediently. You are serving cheerfully. And many of you are doing acts that are going unnoticed in the church of God. And you're proactively serving. And you're serving interpersonally with the people of God. You're creating opportunities of service. You see a need and you get it done. You're continually serving. Others may not see But God does. He does. And as you continue to serve, 
As you continue to minister, as you continue to diligently work for God, for his glory, it honors God. It blesses the brethren. And I think it deepens our faith as well. I'll close with a helpful story, a true story. There's a godly woman. She lived in the 1800s. She is unknown to many, but known to God. Her name is Johanna. Johanna was the wife of a very poor farmer. They lived in the German Empire in the early and mid-1800s, and this woman and her husband, they served as farmers. Spent many, many hours, many, many days, many evenings, many weekends in the fields doing hard work, doing hard work, doing hard work. She was a believer. She loved God. She loved her Savior. She had little contact with the outside world, but what she had seen of the outside world, she had great sympathy and great love for the hurting and suffering unbelievers all around her in that time. She wrote many of her thoughts in poetic line. She was very gifted poetically. And so in her diary, in her devotional, she would often write down words and phrases and verses and meter as they came to her when she would be in the fields. Somehow, as time went on, somehow, a little bit of her poetry was printed. And somehow along the way, that printed poetry found its way into the hands of the Empress of Germany. She read it. And she sent out delegates and messengers, and she said, I want you to find who wrote this poetry. So they went all through the area, and they were searching and looking for, and finally they found and spotted the woman, Joanna, who had penned all of this beautiful poetry. And when the empress had come to Joanna and seen what was going on and where Joanna had lived, her very humble and unassuming lifestyle, her faithful work in the fields, which actually served many people in that region, the empress was so blessed and impressed by this woman, Joanna, that the empress provided all of her immediate needs, and there were quite a few that she had. And the empress also provided a generous pension for young Joanna and her husband for life. She worked. She served. She thought no one noticed. She thought no one would ever see. She thought no one would ever reward her. And maybe God calls you to obscure places of ministry. Maybe God calls you to serve him in places and areas and ministry that you think go unnoticed. Maybe there's a need and an opportunity and something ahead of you and you think, you know, I could do that, but maybe it's not going to receive the honors and accolades and publicity. Maybe your ministry and your service may often go unthanked. It may often go unnoticed. It may go unappreciated. It might even go unrecognized. But God sees it. You may not have a lot of books written about you and your life. You may wonder if God even notices the smallest act of love and the smallest kindness that you do toward his name. But God does see. God does see. And I want to close for you to hear these profound and encouraging words from Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve.
True it is. There are better things for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that you are not unjust, but rather you are infinitely good to remember our ministry, our love, our work, our service one to another. May that motivate us. May may we receive the exhortation to diligently hold fast the confession of our hope firm until the end, not being sluggish, not being lazy, not being dull, but help us to be faithful. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all of our days, all of our efforts, all of our work, all of our praise. May all of our all of our moments be given to you for your honor and for your glory. Thank you for the church family here, the many men and women that serve in, in countless, countless ways. Encourage them in a particular way this afternoon that we would keep excelling for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray.